Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hello, faithful podcast listeners. Pastor Adam here. Hey, we wanted to just give you this uh, quick announcement. First of all, I want to say how much we love you and thank you for listening to this sermon podcast on the Potter's House Church here in Virginia Beach. And just wanted to give you a heads up, we're making some changes to this podcast uh, that's going to benefit you and also our ministry here in the Potter's House Church. So just to inform you, we've switched our podcasting host. It's a service called Anchor, and that has allowed us to uh, receive and generate some income through the placement of a couple of advertisements during our podcast. So we just wanted to inform you of this change because going forward, you are going to hear one or two 30-second ads during each podcast uh, sermon. So um, as a result of that small inconvenience on your part, it means that our church can monetize these podcasts and also that means that we can receive some financial support so that we can continue the work of winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. So we just wanted to say thank you again for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing these messages. And thank you for your patience as we make this helpful change. We hope you have a great day. God bless. It was last October. I'm driving in my car. It is the Friday of our conference. I have dropped Pastor Mitchell off at his hotel Friday afternoon, and I'm making my way to my home, and I'm listening to the radio, and the news comes on, and the news story of the hour was that Rush Limbaugh, America's number one talk show host, has admitted on his program to being addicted to prescription painkillers. He has announced that he is going to leave his show for 30 days. He is going to enter into a rehab clinic and that criminal charges are pending against him. I remember uh, listening to that and being shocked. The allegations had been out there. He had been recently removed from uh, ESPN and covering football for some uh, uh, foolish remarks that he had made. And and when I heard that, uh, I mean to tell you, my heart sunk. I was disappointed. Here is a man who called himself the paragon of morality, a man who preached a message of personal responsibility, and yet, in his private life, we are finding out that it was completely out of control. Now, I have to go on record and say that I agree with most of what what Rush Limbaugh says. I am not an enemy. I I, uh, listen from time to time to his program. I probably agree with him on much of his politics. But as I begin to think about this and begin to do a little bit of research and read a number of articles that came out following this event, God began to speak to me. 
in one of these articles, it made this statement of some of the people that knew Rush Limbaugh. They said it was as it was almost at every step from the studio, he became a smaller and less confident man. That when this man was behind the golden EIB microphone, and he was espousing his, his uh, uh, politics and he was speaking, he was, he was no one better. He's the best that ever lived at what he does. But yet, uh, when the show would come to an end and that light, that on-air light would go off and he would get up um, and he would walk away from the studio, uh, he was a different man. There was a loss of confidence in his life. There were things that he was facing, issues that he was dealing with. Newsweek magazine, which is one of his critics, made this statement. They said the story of Rush Limbaugh is not really the story of the Scarlet Letter. Some of you are familiar with that American classic about rank hypocrisy. It said the story of Rush Limbaugh is not the story of the Scarlet Letter. It's not the story of a hypocrite. But they said if you want to understand Rush Limbaugh, you have to look at another American classic. You have to look at The Wizard of Oz. And the reality that here was a man who presented a very powerful, powerful image. And yet behind the curtains, he was a much smaller man. A man who fought and his greatest fears that people would discover who he really was. I want to preach this evening a sermon I call The Wizard of Oz. And I want to preach this tonight on the struggle that many men and many pastors face with the reality that God uses them powerfully sometimes more powerfully than they really are. 1 Kings 18, well-known portion. I was thinking I preached another sermon out of this very text here not too long ago, but I want you to consider these thoughts with me tonight. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. It says, It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing And seven times he said, uh, go again. Came to pass on the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. It happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and the wind and there was heavy rain. So Ahab rode away to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and he outran Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets at the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. 
And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Let's pray. Father, tonight I pray the Holy Ghost to come down. God, we ask you to bypass the outward appearance. Go way beyond, oh God, the external. Look behind the curtain, oh God, of every heart and every life and meet us there in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin to talk about the man behind the curtain. Now, here's our text this evening. It is the well-known account of Elijah's two extremes of ministry. On one hand, he is the mighty prophet of Mount Carmel, who very publicly calls down fire from heaven. And only in a days later, he is the depressed, discouraged man uh, who prays that very, very private and personal and painful prayer. He prays uh, that he might die. Aren't you glad tonight that the Bible doesn't pull any punches about its leaders? I'm glad tonight that the Bible is not a public relations book, uh, beloved, but God lets us see people as they really are because that gives hope uh, to you and I. Can you say amen? And before you write off Elijah as a manic depressant, before you dismiss him as uh, suffering from bipolar disorder, before you say, well, all great men are eccentric uh, and, you know, all uh, gifted people are, 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 have, uh, you know, mercurial personalities. Uh, I want you to consider the words of James uh, when he said Elijah was a man of like passion. What he is saying there is Elijah is just like you and I. Can you say amen? He wasn't some extreme personality. He wasn't some oddball that none of us can relate to. Uh, beloved, he was a man just like you and I, uh, with the same emotional makeup uh, as you and I. Uh, and he knew what it was to ride high, and he knew what it was to go low. See, what's happening here is God is allowing us to see the public Elijah, and then he's permitting us to see the man behind the curtain. This is a very revealing look into the private life of this man. Now, I know that we like to think that all men of God are always on an emotional high. I know we like to believe that if you really love God and if you're a real man of God, that you're smiling all the time and you're unfazed uh, about life's problems. Uh, I want to tell you tonight, that's not Jesus, that's Prozac. <laughs> what we are given in the Word of God, that beloved, uh, is uh, the human side of ministry and struggle. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God uses people. God takes uh, men and women, beloved, that are not perfect, uh, and then he powerfully ministers in our life. Uh, and, beloved, uh, when God can find a surrendered heart, it is amazing what God can do with a common and ordinary person. People of like passion, people, beloved, uh, that still have flaws, uh, that are not perfect. Um, and listen to me tonight. Uh, God deliberately um, raises up men uh, to be more powerful than they really are. So listen to me tonight. If you're going to get anywhere, you must understand this. God will take a man, and because he has a purpose to accomplish... Because he wants to benefit his people, he will take that man and then he will use that man and he will project an image of that man that is way beyond what he is. That is not hypocrisy. That is not being a phony. That is not being a fake. That is how God works. Listen to these scriptures tonight. 
The Bible says in Joshua 3, 7, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, what is going to happen is he is going to, God is going to part the Jordan River. They're going to pass over into the promised land on dry ground. And in the beginning of the day, God says something to Joshua. He says, I'm going to exalt you today. Now, how many know that that night Joshua was the same man that he was in the morning? He wasn't a better man. His character wasn't any better. The fact was the only thing that was different is that God took Joshua and for his purpose, he exalted him. He projected an image of Joshua way beyond who Joshua really was. Joshua was the same old man, but to fulfill the purpose of God, said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to elevate you. And people are going to look at you different. By the end of the day, people are going to look at you different. You're still the same man, but they're going to see you differently because I have something I want to do. 2 Samuel 7, 9, I have been with you. This is God talking to David. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. God says, I did this. This wasn't you, David, and and your hard work and your skill that you have somehow brought this about. uh, And he says, no, 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 I am going to take you, young man, uh, and I'm going to make you great. I am going to begin to do something. And what's going to happen is you're going to be essentially the same dude. But I'm going to project an image of you. And people, when they look at David, they're going to see what I let them see. But you're still the same man. The Bible says of Uzziah, his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he is strong. For God's purpose, he will take a man... And he will let that man experience a grace beyond himself. See, our conferences are not personality cults. We're not here this evening uh, to demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, high-powered personalities, uh, multi-gifted and talented people. Beloved, I want to tell you tonight, uh, God will take us and he will use us way beyond who we are. And this becomes an issue tonight. Because as God begins to use you and help you, uh, hey man, he begins to project this. Uh, and you know what? The people see something, but that's not you. You're the guy behind the curtain. See, we will not always be in that mode. You will find that the service comes to an end. The mission trip ends. Isn't it interesting that the priestly garments were to be worn. These, you, know, you, you study these garments. These garments are prophetic. These garments, especially the high priest's garment, uh, is a prophetic picture of the Lord Jesus. But do you realize the Bible says these garments were not always to be worn? They were to be worn at a specific time of service being rendered in the temple. And then when the service was over, they actually had to take off those prophetic garments. They had to remove them. They weren't always in them. They didn't walk in them 24 hours a day. They were there and they were serving a purpose. Let me see if I can communicate this to you. There in San Antonio, we have the Alamo. And and the Alamo, uh, across the street, they have an IMAX theater and they have a documentary called The Price of Freedom, Freedom. And it is the story of the Alamo according to the Texans. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great uh, thing, you know, it's very melodramatic, you know, and uh, I know you all know the story of the Alamo, at least I hope you know it. Anyway, let me tell you. 
And so this, uh, this uh, you know, so here, here it is. You know, you have uh, these Texans, around 185 of them, and they have taken control of this fort, uh, uh, the Alamo there, and they're in San Antonio, and Santa Ana and his army have come down to take it back. 2,000 uh, uh, or so of Mexican army have surrounded the, and have besieged the Alamo for 13 days. William Travis is 26 years old. He's the man in charge. He is calling for help. He's asking people to come and help them fight off the, this attack, and nobody will come. And so finally it is clear that they're going to have to stay and they're going to have to fight to the death. And there's a scene in this, in this um, and the legend goes that when it was clear that nobody was going to come to their aid and he begins to notice that the, the Mexican army is uh, making maneuvers and are preparing for a final assault. Colonel Travis calls all the men together there in front of the, uh, the chapel there in the Alamo. And he says, we've got three choices. We can... We can run away and betray the dream of independence. We can surrender and suffer the shame of surrender. Or we can stay and fight. And then, according to the story, he said, if I'm destined to die, let my scabbard be empty and let my sword be red with the blood of men that would deny freedom. And then he pulled his sword out of his sheath. He went and he drew a line in the sand and he stood there and he said to these men, he said, you who will stay and die with me, cross this line. And according to the story, 185 men crossed the line that day, including, uh, uh, including uh, uh, James Bowie, who had, uh, uh, had, uh, was in a bed, he was dying of pneumonia, and they actually picked him up and carried his bed across the line. Only one man chose not to, to go he said, I'm not going to do that. This man left. The irony is that this man survived to tell what happened that day. And so in the, in the IMAX movie, you know, uh, these men have resolved that they're going to die together. They victory or death, and they start cheering. The music is playing. They start hugging each other. It's a, a powerful moment. Uh, you know, these men have resolved to die, and it's very powerful. Uh, but what, what, what struck me is that the music fades, and the, and the scene fades, and there's the next scene. In the next scene, Colonel Travis goes into his quarters. He sits down, and the reality of the choice he has made comes home on him. In the public setting, it was easy for him to make that declaration. But now he's by himself, and as he's by himself, uh, he begins to hear the voice of his wife and his son. And he begins to realize he will never see his family again. And you can see him as he's rubbing his head uh, and he's agonizing over this moment uh, because it's a totally different thing uh, when you're in a crowd and everybody's excited that you can say things. Uh, it's quite another thing when you go home uh, and you're all by yourself in your room. When you're behind the curtain. When it's no longer the projected image that God uses to accomplish his purpose. You know, I believe this is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 12. Because in just a handful of verses, this guy goes from the heights to the depths of all ministry. He begins by saying, you know, I knew a man once. He goes, I think it was in the spirit. And this man had been to the third heaven. Now, how many know that's pretty heavy revelation? If you're here, you say, well, pastor, that happens to me all the time. Uh, point out who you are. We'll get the ushers and we'll run you out the building right now. I don't have this kind. I don't know anything about third heaven, man. 
But Paul has this revelation. He has this, some, this angelic visitation. And he says, this man from the third heaven came and he told me things I'm not even allowed to repeat. That is the height of spirituality. That, beloved, is, is beyond us tonight. Yet in this very same uh, uh, statement, he goes on to say, and oh, by the way, a messenger of Satan came uh, and buffeted me. Uh, and he said, I prayed about this over and over again, and I saw no relief. And right there in that brief statement, he says, I know what it is uh, to ride on the peaks of spirituality and spiritual dominion. Uh, but I want to tell you something. I know what it is to fight in the trenches and feel like I'm losing. This is an admission. This is a man that says, yes, uh, there's that glorious projected image when you're ministering beyond who you are. He goes, but you know what? There's also another time in life when you're wrestling with things and you're fighting things and nobody even knows. I want to talk to you secondly this, about the battle that takes place behind the curtains. Because you know what, church, this is where the conflict really rages. Well, thank God for the public arena. But how many know people don't fall in the public arena? Can you say, man, I know that we come to church here and we sing songs and we talk tough. Come on now. You know what I mean? We sing, you know, I'm going to bring the devil's kingdom down. And I command you, Satan, in the name of the Lord, pick up your... Oh, listen, we're great. We all talk smack uh, here at church. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want, you know, I thank God for a good song service, but you know, I don't know how really scared the devil gets at our song services. <laughs> oh, no, don't sing that again. No, you're going to bring my kingdom. No, I hate that song. In fact, in fact I kind of believe that the devil sometimes sits in our song service. Yeah, I like that, man. That's got a good beat. Yeah. And not just a song service. How many know preachers talk tough? You know, you know yeah, the devil, uh, I hate the devil uh, and his boyfriend. I don't know. I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that line. I hate the devil. I'm going to jump down the devil's throat and step on his liver. <sighs> like this is WWF Christianity, you know. But how many know we can make say all that here, but he don't really care. The reality is he's sitting out in the parking lot right now reading the paper waiting for the service to end. You're going to get in your car? He's going to close it up. What did he preach on tonight? Uh-huh. Okay. You know, we always, Pastor Campbell used a very powerful sermon last night in David and Goliath. We always use David and Goliath as a type of spiritual warfare and is valid. But you know, there are other Old Testament battles that are just as valid. What about Benai? The Bible says that he fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You want a picture of spiritual warfare, that's it. Fighting a lion, how many know the devil's a roaring lion? In a pit, meaning it's just you and him. It's not public. It's private. Snowy day meaning that oftentimes we're on his turf and not ours. And one other thing, it's a fight to the death. That's the spiritual warfare. 
It is not the public arena. It is not right now. It's not what is happening right now, beloved. It be happens behind the curtains. And if you would have looked at Elijah that day as he stood on Mount Carmel, you would have been so impressed. And there's no way that you would have guessed that in just a few hours he would be in a cave or under a tree wishing that he could die. There's no way from the public perception, from the powerful image that was projected, that just in a matter of hours, he would be praying that he might die. Let's talk about three battles that take place behind the curtains. Number one, there's the battle of daily life. The reality is there's a difference between functioning in the office and the anointing that comes with it and stepping into normal life. You look at the day Elisha had, you cannot get a much better day. He calls fire down from heaven. Not only does he call fire down from heaven, he has the entire nation chanting the Lord, he is God, and killing the prophets of Baal. After that, uh, he prays that it might rain, and it rains for the first time in three and a half years. Uh, and then what I believe is the best of all the miracles uh, is he turns to a, uh, a King Ahab, uh, and uh, he says, you know, you better get home because it's going to start raining. Ahab is in the royal chariot, uh, and he takes off across the valley of Jezreel uh, from Mount Carmel over to Samaria. And the Bible says that Elijah is so anointed, so excited, uh, that he just girds up his loins, and he takes takes off running. I don't know if this is where the evangelist gets up. Somebody run for me. But I mean, he took off running. Uh, and the Bible says uh, that he outran Ahab and was waiting for him at the gates of Samaria 40 miles. That's powerful, man. That's a good day. There's anointing, incredible favor and anointing in ministry. The only problem is you have to go from those days uh, to go home, pay bills, take out the trash, and whip the kids. And I found out a long time ago, it doesn't matter how powerful the anointing is when I minister, I still have to go home, pay bills, take out the trash, and whip the kids. And I found out something, that anointing that I sense when I minister does not go with me when I go home. And every pastor's wife said, amen. <laughs> I found out that I cannot function in that anointing when it comes to my everyday life. I can be at church and preach uh, and lay hands and things, uh, but I just can't go home and say, oh, Yolanda, how was the service? Oh, what are we having for dinner? Son, make your bed. Yeah, you know, I can't do that. <laughs> Have you ever met people that act like that in real life? Don't they scare you? <laughs> Go get my oil changed and, uh, hey, uh, hey, how you doing? I'm going to get my oil changed. Hallelujah, brother. What, do you, what kind of oil do you want? <laughs> 10W30. The anointing oil, hallelujah. Hey, listen, man. You need to chill out, dude. Hey, you got to live life. 
Oh, we tell sinners all the time. We, we're street preaching. There's a morning after. I want to tell you, preacher, there's a morning after. You have to function. You got to face issues. You can't get a more powerful service than the ark coming into Jerusalem. And yet David leaves that and he goes home to a horrible marriage. And negotiating an embittered wife. It happens all the time. Nobody knows that. Nobody sees that. They see the projected image of the man dancing before the Lord. They don't see that. It happens behind the curtain. I have young men in my church, tremendous when it comes to outreach. If you came to an outreach, you would look at them and you say, that's a disciple. Preach, witness to people, bring people to decision. Come to church service, got the tie in prayer meeting, uh, aggressive. You, you, you would you'd say, that is a man of God. They can't keep a job. Can't handle their wife in a, in a, when they're having a fight. Can't just live life. Can't just function in daily life. Oh, I mean, the, hey, when God turns on the projector, they're great. But see, you got to live in the real world, brother. You've got to pay your bills. You've got to balance your checkbook, man. You've got to love your wife. There's a second battle that happens behind the curtain, and that is the battle of isolation. See, Elijah's experience was not just personal, it was private. We read in two times in chapter 19 the words, I alone am left. And so we can fault him tonight. Let me just throw this in for free this evening. We can fault Elijah because how many know that there are always people that walk around and say, I don't have any friends. I don't have any friends in this church. Or, Nobody talks to me. Nobody calls me. Hey, you know what? Who wants to hang around a black hole of self-pity? <laughs> and so if you come to a church like this and you don't have any friends, you know what? It's your problem. So, okay, I said that. Let's get back to the sermon right here. But you know, here's the real issue. The real issue is that oftentimes we get trapped, Pastor, by our image. Because people look at us that way. We're so afraid of people seeing any other side of us. That's the, that's, that's the irony, isn't it? is that we want people to think of us as men of God and powerful and anointed. We want all of that, and that's glory. There's nothing wrong with that. The only problem is that's not you. <laughs> and so here you are in your private life, behind the curtain, and there are things going on in your life. Many times there are issues. Woe unto him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to lift him up. And you're by yourself, uh, but you've become trapped by this idea. Well, what do people think of me? And it's not just my people in church, but my, my peers uh, or my pastor. Uh, they all think I'm this. They all know me as this. Uh, and here I am. I'm struggling. I'm dying. But we're behind the curtain. And we don't want people to think that, 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 that that's there. We just, want to, we just want everybody to see this image. 
You can't, nor should you be too transparent with your people. I understand that. But you know what? There better be somebody in your life that knows the real you. Oh, man, I want to tell you, I have sat down with heartbreaking situations of men uh, who one man just told me the other day he came clean about something and he said, Pastor, uh, I didn't tell you, not because of pride, uh, but because of shame. Translated, uh, I wanted you to think of me differently. And while this raged in his life, he became enslaved to a an image projected by God because God was using him that he lost touch with who he really was. You know, they say of Rush Limbaugh that none of his closest friends knew about his problem, not even his wife. None of his closest friends. They went around interviewing people trying to find somebody in Rush Limbaugh's circle that said, yeah, we knew Rush was hooked on painkillers. Yeah, we, he, nobody but here he is bound, this horrible addiction. That he'd become so bound to the perception that he couldn't bear to have anybody know what was really going on. The Apostle Paul says, within were fears. Now, what does that mean? Within were fears. Yeah, it means I'm out there. I'm the mighty, powerful man of God. I shake off vipers. I raise people from the dead. He says, but there's a totally other battle going on inside. You with me tonight? There's a third battle. It's the battle with failure. Elijah wrestled with the sense of failure. He says, I am no better than my father's. Now, obviously, he had hoped for lasting impact through his ministry. We've preached it many times. He thought he had turned a nation only to see the nation turn back in one day. Now, we look at his ministry and we think, wow, what a success. We look at what Elijah did and we think uh, to this day, what a powerful man. John the Baptist says the ministry of Elijah, Elijah's ministry resurrected in the book of Revelation. We see him that way. In fact, God sees him that way. And yet, in this man's mind, I am a failure. I have disappointed my fathers. I have not lived up to what I could have been. And I would suggest to you tonight, church, that there are many men who feel this way, not publicly, but privately. Oh, publicly, we stride about. Uh, our egos are involved. Uh, we want to make sure everybody sees us as success. Uh, but we're not preaching about the public man tonight. We're talking about what many men wrestle with in private, and that is a sense that I am a failure. I have not been what I could have been. I am a shell of the man I could have been. I disappointed my fathers. Uh, many men wrestle with the fact uh, that their, their fathers, and I'm speaking about their natural fathers, uh, are never pleased with them. Men who are in our church as pastors uh, and yet deep down feel like, you know, my pastor, I know that he's disappointed in what I've become. He may treat me uh, with dignity. He may even give me platform to pray. But, but deep down, I know, I know that he knows me and he knows that I'm not what I should have been. 
See, men struggle with this. Ladies, can I tell you something tonight about your husband? He's a trip. (laughs) Because, I mean, from the moment we're babies and we get to be little boys, we're all about competition. I mean, we're compete. Amen. We fist fight. I had four brothers. We, everything was a competition. Socks in the drawer turned into a tournament. Everything was competition. Everything, we would have lawn mowing races. I mean, everything uh, is about uh, competition because God made us that way. Competition is in our, in our genes. This is the way men are. There is a competitive streak inside us. Uh, but that competitive streak, we find expression on the basketball court and on and on. But I want to tell you, the ultimate competition in life is can you get married? Can you stay with her? And can you raise your kids? And the feeling many men have when they finally get a divorce or they've got somebody else raising their kids is the sense that I have lost. Men struggle with this. I'm no better than my father's. Look at me. And people come up to you and say, hey, no, bro, that was powerful. You called fire down from heaven. You, you, know, you prayed and it rained and all that. But, but, but I'm going to tell you, when you get into this in your mind, it doesn't matter. You could pastor 500 people, 1,000 people tonight, and yet live with a profound sense of failure and disappointment. You feel like, you know what, I haven't measured up. You know, there's a term, they call it the imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome is people who, despite high achievement, feel like a phony that is about to be exposed. San Antonio, we have a, is headquarters for Luby's Cafeteria. I don't know if y'all have Luby's here. You had one in Colleen. And there's, there's Luby's, was headquartered in San Antonio back in the early 90s. And it probably had something to do with what happened in Colleen, by the way. The CEO of Luby's checked himself into a little $50 a night hotel and blew his brains out. The CEO of a national corporation. I remember reading an article about what they call executive suicide. These are people that are achievers. These are people that, uh, that, that you know, you would think would never, ever have a crisis of confidence. And yet they say so many of these people, these men, wrestle with the sense that I'm just a phony, just a fake. One day it's all going to come out. That's not the image that's projected, but that's what's happening. We know that Rush Limbaugh's father and grandfather were judges. He comes from a well-known legal family in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. His father never, ever took him seriously. His brother became a lawyer. It was understood Limbaugh's go to college, go to law school, and are serving the law profession. Rush Limbaugh's a dropout. He'd been married two times, kind of a never-do-well before he found his, his niche in radio. I remember reading an article in Reader's Digest that even after he began to be successful and was already a national figure, that his father still held back endorsing what he was doing. Still felt that this is, this is frivolous, you know. One day you need to get serious, son. Here's a man that commands an audience of 20 million people 
a week, has the ability to turn national elections and yet still say, I'm no better than my father's. Oh, not publicly. Oh, no, in public, we're confident, we smile, we do everything. But down behind the curtain, totally different story. I want to close and I want to talk to you about the God that is behind the curtains tonight. We believe something in our fellowship, and that is that God is more interested in the worker than he is the work. God is more interested in the worker than the work. Why do I say that? Because most of God's dealings with Elijah take place behind the curtains. We read the story of his public ministry, but we find that when God wants to speak to Elijah, he doesn't speak to him on top of Mount Carmel. He speaks to him under a broom tree or in a cave. He speaks to him in the private places. He feeds him. He reveals himself to him. He brings guidance and direction. And I would say to you tonight, uh, it is dangerous to think that God is only interested in your public ministry. It is a mistake to think tonight that as God looks down at you, that all he matters to him is how well you perform. The fact is that God knows that if he can get you in private, it will affect what you are in public. Matthew 6, three times, Jesus says, Your Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. You know, he's saying something powerful there. You know, your Father who sees in secret was not meant to be a warning. It was meant to be encouraging. We often preach about the God who sees in secret and everybody goes, Oh, no. They don't have it right. God is saying, you don't understand. I I want to meet you there. I want to help you there because that's where you're losing. That is where it's happening. And he says, you know what? Uh, If I can meet you in private, he says, there's a public reward. There's a public dimension. There's a public affirmation. If I could only meet you behind the curtain, listen to me tonight. The tragedy is there's many people that so many disappointments, uh, so many failures behind the curtain, they have given up on God in that place in their life. A marriage that is not getting any better. A sin that is besetting and it's not coming to an end. And so we get cynical behind the We just simply resign ourselves to the fact that I'm going to just carry this thing out publicly as long as I can and are resigned that when I get behind the curtain, it is what it is. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's a father who sees in secret, who wants to get involved in that part of your life, who wants to be real like he was real in Elijah at that moment and at that place. The religious professionals of Jesus' day had completely given up on their private life. They had completely abandoned any effort to do right in private. And Jesus called them a dead man's bones and dirty cups and a brood of vipers. But he said to his men, there is a reward to those who will let God help them privately. There is a reward to those who will say, God, 
This is where I need you to be real. We're not here in this conference to learn how to preach. We're not here, beloved, to just learn, you know, some, to, some good jokes and, and uh, just kind of please ourselves. I mean, when Pastor Campbell used that illustration from Charisma Magazine about uh, Christians and cosmetic surgery, I mean, it's that the hair stand up on the back of my neck. We need God behind the curtain, man. He's got to do something there. I want to close. I want to talk about the hope. Isn't it interesting that there was a veil that separated the ark? The presence of God that was above the ark of a mercy seat. And there was a curtain that separated it from the rest of the tabernacle. Once a year, the high priest tied the rope to him. And he would go in and he would offer up the yearly sacrifice. And in case he died, they would be able to pull him out. And that holy, awesome presence of God that dwelt behind the curtain... But Jesus Christ died on a cross, and the Bible says that when he died, the curtain opened up. And God said, I'm no longer behind a curtain. I'm no longer hidden from man. You know what that means? It means tonight he came out from behind his curtain to get behind your curtain and reach down to where you're at tonight, your battle and your struggle. I say, God, this is where I need you. Lord, I'm not here to project. I'm here to do business. Rush Limbaugh has the gospel of self-reliance. And during this crisis, you know what? He was all by himself. Because the gospel of personal responsibility and good conservative politics cannot save you. Last thing I heard is he just got divorced from his wife, number three. I want to tell you tonight, God has better things for us. Say, Lord, you know what? Tonight, I'm going to come down to an altar. I'm going to pull it back. And God, I need you right there. Let's bow our heads. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vvph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people. Oh.